How many how many times do people hear about people talking about from people from Burundi? Man, don't don't our brothers and sisters don't get on. I, no, I'm just saying. <laughs> but I'm saying, what do, you, what do you hear? What do you hear about Mauritius? I mean, it's not, it's not shade to them, but like, if you are out front, if you're not loud, if you're not doing this, you're not doing that. If you're not a target, you know what I'm saying. If you're not doing things on a major scale, or have people in your country doing things on a major scale, no one's talking about you. Yeah. Name a popular Burundian. I mean, I don't know one. Make someone from Djibouti. Where did they stop? I'm just saying, make someone from Djibouti. Welcome to Foreign-ish, where guests share their stories about being a first-gen American. I'm your host, Sirku Dejeni. Yeah, it just seems like every day you, you have, I have to go on Twitter or go on CNN to make sure it's okay to go outside. <laughs> I don't even. Let me tell you, what I, it's so funny because I was talking to my friend. She's visiting. Um, this is. She's been. It's been like two years. Mm-hmm. She's still over there, but um. Like coming back here, it's crazy. Like I'm actually kind of scared to be in this country. But I have a friend who moved to Costa Rica. Oh really? Yeah. Like. Oh. Yeah, like like literally, like, I'm because... taking me and my family because the country's crazy. Oh. And we moved to Costa Rica. Are they Costa Rican or no? They're, they're African American. And they just moved. Yeah. Like during the pandemic or recently? No, like three weeks ago. What? Yeah. She, she experienced peace that she never experienced before. Yeah, of course, of course. The people are nice. There's no military. There's no oppression. She can walk freely, eat fresh food. Okay. Like, so I'm like, What's like the plan, though? Are they ever going to come back? Or it's just like for the time being? I mean, she has the ability to come back when she wants to, but she's now America's an option for her. And she's they're working like for American companies? Or? No, she um, started a business out there. Oh, so, okay. And she got businesses in America that just put in an account. She got access oh. to her account. Oh, so okay. Well, I'm not mad at it. Sorry, yeah, but I'm I mean, I think I think, I think that's, a, that's a position of privilege. I mean, I think we also have experienced that privilege of where course. America is an option. Of course. Um, not like either one of us have countries that are like amazing options, but <laughs> but option nonetheless. Yeah. Depends on what kind of what, what bullshit you're willing to put up with at that point in time in your Ooh. life. DC's, I love DC. If I ever left Chicago, that's why I'm moving. I'll oh, really? I'll well, DMV area, I mean, there's enough of y'all there, too. So Yeah, I mean, but it's the only place that we're actually outnumbered, though. Like, music oh, you think Nigerians so? are not outnumbered by many Africans in most most cities, except except uh, except uh, DC. Maybe Denver. Denver, too, but still. Yeah, y'all are deep in Texas. I'm pretty sure Houston? y'all own Texas. Yeah, Houston, we, we, we thick. Okay, so... Welcome to today's program. I have my good friend Boye de Sobitan. Hey, what's up, everybody? <laughs> um, so I have him uh, joining us today. Why don't you tell the folks um, just a little bit about yourself, real quickly? I don't. Do you want me? I always like to have guests introduce themselves. I'm, I can introduce myself. Yeah. Um, you stated my name is Boye de Sobitan. Um, I like to tell everybody I'm a self-professed Nigerian. Okay. Uh, I'm a Nigerian of or Chicagoan of Nigerian extraction. Um, came to the U.S. as a kid, um, very, very young, um, against my will. My parents decided, made that decision. Um, grew up on the north side of Chicago. Um, shortly thereafter, moved to the south, south suburbs. Um, came back to the city uh, for undergrad and have been in the city primarily ever since for the most part. So now I'm a proud um, resident in the Bronzeville community and I'm appreciating the property value increase and all the other great things that are going on in Brownsville. And yeah, and I'm just happy to be here. Okay, well, welcome to the program, Boy Day. Thanks for joining us. Um, how old were you when you came to the States? Uh, I had to be like three-ish, 
two or three-ish. I can't remember. It was young. Um, but even though I was pretty young when we came, um, I didn't know where I was in the sense that like my experience was all very much still a very Nigerian experience. Mm-hmm. My first language wasn't even English. My first language was actually Yoruba. Um, so I spoke Yoruba for a long time to the point that like when I was finally um, put in school, I had to go to speech therapy um, because I would say things with uh, certain accents and things of that nature like chocolates and <laughs> different things because that's how we said, how the Nigerian said it. So. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, what was your assimilation experience like? Like, do you remember the first, I don't know, few months or I know you were young, but mm-hmm. those first few years, you know, making that transition from Nigeria to the States or did you, do you feel like you just sort of were American kind of at a young I age? I never felt American. And really, I've never, I've never felt American. Um, you got to realize I came here in the early, early to mid eighties. Um, totally different vibe for what it meant to be African. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, what it meant to be black. If we're, if we're being honest, I mean, I wasn't too far removed from a couple of decades removed from the Civil Rights Act being passed. When I think about it. So when we came here, um, yeah, it was very confusing. And like I said, my household was very much Nigerian, but my external was very much not Nigerian and very much anti-black in a lot of different ways. So it was a very, very interesting experience. And I juxtapose that to now, where now it was actually cool to be Nigerian. Like we kind of get a little bit of love out here in these streets. Well, no, shout out to the Afrobeats and yeah. the Nollywood movies and all the other things that have kind of put Nigerians on a map um, in good and bad ways, you know, if I'm being fair. So uh, yeah. So tell us again, um, just going back to your childhood, when did you realize that there was sort of a difference? You said you, you, don't, you didn't feel like you were American. Mm-mm. Did you have that sort of community like in school? Did you find other Nigerians or other African kids? Or did you have like after school programs? Or where, where did you find your community, if, if any? At church. Okay. At home. Okay. Or whenever we got back to the apartment. I grew up on the north side. Uh, everybody knows the, the particular places on the north side, right? You know uh, Twin Towers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know uh, 4640. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we grew up on Sunnyside. Uh, you know Waveland. You just know certain buildings. And then when people have birthday parties in those community, that was community, right? Okay. Um, during the day, it was interesting. Because living on the north side was very diverse. Um, primarily, mostly African immigrants grew up in Uptown. So I had a lot of uh, Ghanaian cousins, Ethiopian cousins, and Indians that mm-hmm. uh, we grew up around. And even though we spoke Yoruba at home and I understood it very clearly, I thought that Yoruba was anything that wasn't English. So I remember vividly as a kid, my mom taking us to go get her car fixed at the time, and the guy was speaking Spanish. <laughs> I thought he was speaking Yoruba because it, wasn't, it just wasn't English. So anything that wasn't English was automatically Yoruba to me, even if I didn't understand it or not. So... Um, but the community was where we lived, really, at that time. And, like, I'm just thinking about how, how much that community has now dispersed and what has come, up, come, up, come of that community now. But, yeah, um, it, was, it was our apartment buildings. It was the fact that your neighbor next door was going through the same thing you, know, you were going through. Their mom or dad just got here. They're driving cabs or doing CNA work or doing whatever they're going to do to get through either the community college or university lifestyle they were working at the time so that was pretty much what it was so when you got to school and you're making friends who were your friends at school i mean how were you adapting to american lifestyle or how were you adapting just being you know a kid um i don't think i 
quite understood it if I'm if I'm being clear. But even when I recollect back to grammar school and things of that nature, um, preschool, um, I, I just I was influenced a lot by TV. Mm. Um, different strokes and all those different like silver spoons and all those other like shows back in the day. Um, a lot of cartoons I was influenced by. <laughs> um, and I was making friends with kids, but like also again, this is like you know, um, this is the early eighties. Um, racism. We're like I'm, I'm like that that post um, civil rights generation booming kids and like no that baby uh, no I'm a no I'm a I'm a millennial I'm an OG millennial yes I'm an OG millennial uh, but that post baby that little no uh, um, uh, child of baby boomers right so um, I'm thinking about the kids I used to uh, associate with I remember in school people using the word nigger mm. and me not necessarily know what it meant but not knowing it wasn't good mm. I remember me getting a lot of fights <laughs> as a kid um, and I would get in trouble with a white principal who automatically, retrospectively, had it out for me. Um, I didn't know. I just thought I was just a bad kid. But mm-hmm. not knowing that I was a black kid. And this is a guy who grew up in the probably 60s, 50s, who never had to have black kids to deal with. And now he has this, not only does he have a black kid, he has an African kid. Did you ever take, so it sounds like maybe a lot of... Um, a lot of things that you saw either in the media or in general were generally black culture, right? There wasn't necessarily a lot of African specific. No, anything African specific was, was what my parents brought home or imported home, meaning that Saturday morning cleaning up, we were listening to, you know, Sunny Ade, uh, Fela, mm-hmm. Obisere, um, a lot of Nigerian, Yoruba gospel music. That was the influence as far as music and entertainment. At the time, at the time, Nollywood was was growing, but wasn't where we were getting like the disc and, and the, the video, the VHS, video v, yeah. v, v, uh, VHS tapes yeah. um, to watch at those times. So it was just like what, what, like whatever they had immediate access to. Did you ever um, think at one point like, oh, okay, let me be like you know the other black kids in my class? Like that's the way to well, no, I, you just I, maintained I, I, your. No, I, I, I didn't know. I was trying to be like the white kids. Oh really? Yeah, because I went to like so we moved to the south suburbs, Lansing, Illinois, oh. <laughs> predominantly white, and mm-hmm. not too many other black kids there. Um, so I was listening to Guns and Roses and like the Beach Boys, and I had like the uh, whole tie dye shirts with the skulls on and stuff because I thought that's what it was, right? I didn't know better, and then we moved from there to Dalton at the time, which was more mixed. Way more mixed than it is now. People know who Dalton is now. Yeah, it's um, And then I went from being called a nigger to being called a nigger and being confused. Like, what the? What's going on? Like, is this my name? Like, is this described on me or something? Until I kind of understood um, the dynamics. So I, I grew up very much um, um, Eurocentric. Also, by this time, I had already been to Europe. I've been to spend some time in the UK. So I have a, a lot of Anglophilic um, inspirations. I had a cousin here in Chicago who um, was going to like Sacred Heart and like mm. Chicago City Day School and all these prestigious schools that were predominantly white. So like, okay, so that's the way. Uh, that's that's how you got to get down. Now I go to the school where like now it's predominantly black, and um, my uncle was living with us and he introduced me to like hip hop at a very early age. So my first rap song, aside from the Bear Super Bowl Shuffle, which helped me understand English, was um, LL Cool J's "I'm Bad." <laughs> 
Mm. Um, heard that you no know, MTV, your MTV raps was coming on, so I was getting a lot of early influence with hip hop. So I saw that. I remember listening to like Kumo D, Tone Loke, Heavy D, um, like all those guys, like you no know, Big Daddy Kane. Those were like my early like exposure to hip hop and what is now commonly referred to as like black culture hands in air quotes okay so fast forwarding a little bit you get through high school now you're going to college where did you go to school on to uic okay so you stayed in the city here what was that transition like in terms of sort of your cultural identity a lot of i know just my personal experience and you know talking with other friends like especially if you were born in that sort of predominantly white you know Mm -hmm. high school or institution you know you obviously you get more exposed to black culture african culture you know you, you're there's a lot more um the community grows substantially from high school to college um what was your experience like um at uic in terms of just sort of continuing that identity exploration yeah so i mean i think it, it, it goes in ways. way so I, again early introduction to you know white anglo-saxon american culture then going into black culture. Then I went to a predominantly black high school. I um, went to Thornbridge High School um, in the South Suburbs. And then later on in my high school career, maybe around junior, senior year, I started to get really, really, I would like to say radicalized, right? I started reading a lot more books. I started watching a lot more movies like Higher Learning, Malcolm X. Uh, what else did I watch? Uh, black Panther. So I started to like, yo, I started to really get exposed to race. You know, you think you're 17, 18, you think you know it all. Like, oh, damn. Like, all this is going on. I go to college. And even though I'm in UIC in the city, it was predominantly white and Asian, um, white and, um, and East Asian. Um, so that whole sense of cleaving to the black community was a lot stronger. Then I realized there was a growing, um, a huge community of African immigrants here at UIC. Um, even more, even beyond that, um, um, Nigerian immigrants. Like I think when I was at UIC it was the first time I actually met. Nigerians for a long time, Yoruba was and Nigeria was synonymous. I didn't really understand the the other culture that like Igbo, uh, people from Edo State, people from all these different places. Like, oh damn! Um, like so, I started to learn a lot more and it opened myself up to a lot more of my culture because, again, what was in my household, my church, you no, know, we singing Yoruba. Everything was in Yoruba. So even the Igbo people who I not found out were Igbo were singing in Yoruba too. So I'm like, okay, we all. This is how we get down. Okay. So there's a period of enlightenment at UIC. Definitely. I think enlightenment and um, exposure. Then one of my uh, uh, good friends at the time, um, Chuba, we got cool. I started, he started to uh, you know, teach me more about Igbo culture that I didn't know before, appreciate before. I started to meet a lot more Igbo people who I never thought their names were Igbo because sometimes the name... Africans have this thing of wanting to anglicize their names or or, or to assimilate, give themselves like, you no know, quote-unquote Christian names. Um, so I never, you know, cared about the last name. No, for Chuba, it was just Michael. I never knew Michael Ezekwe. No, you never had a, a, never, a, never. a anglicized name. They were like, oh, Boyade. Like, do you have a nickname? Like something easier that people. The only thing I, a lot of people ever call me was B. That's oh, it. okay. That's not bad. That's it. Other yeah. than that, you got to say my name. My, and my dad, I like to shout out my dad for that. He really taught me the power of a name. And he never allowed me to try to anglicize my name and make it easy for people to say. And he would, you know, in Yoruba, like culture, names are powerful. We don't play with names. So, like, I never had the desire to anglicize. Now, granted, it took a long time. I wanted to be Rashid for a long time. But 
you know. Where did Rashid come from? It was this cool kid named Rashid, and I'm like, okay, I know how my family is Muslim. I started, that's how I'm the Arabic name, so I'm like, I can, I can rock with Rashid. <laughs> So one thing I did want to ask you, because um, I always just generally was curious about, you are a proud member of the Alpha Phi Alpha fraternity, yes. one of the divine nine of Black Greek life. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me about how you got into that, because I'm always curious about, I understand you know, the historical aspects of, um, of the divine nine and why, you know, in the, in the Greek life system. Um, I'm always curious about for, for more recent African immigrants, um, why they join um, the, the those Greek organizations, um, and I've we you know I've had conversations with friends back in college mm-hmm. and even present day. So I'm just curious, what inspired you to join, or what was the motivation for you to join that? Yeah, so I am definitely a proud member of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated, Greater Theta Chapter. Okay. Um, uh, some of it. Some of it is for the regular thing people people initially join for, right? Yo, they, they like what kind of call I want to do that stroll. I want to, I want to step. I want to do all those different things, it's a flex, right? Yeah. I want to, you know, those, those things. Because then you know, the ladies, you know, got the jacket, you know, the whole, the whole thing, superficial stuff, mm-hmm. right? And then usually when you're going through the process, you're asked to come around and see things. So I'm seeing this community service. Um, I got access to books. I'm starting to read about it. And when you start to really unpack and really look at like the history of the Black Greek letter organizations. Um, from a value standpoint, it really resonates, especially with Alpha, right? But then from a historical standpoint, if you think about like the first president of Nigeria was, was Phi Beta Sigma. Really? Kwame Nkrumah was a Sigma. Okay. Right? If the University of Toronto, I think it was the Delta chapter at the time, when I go back and look at their initial charter line, somewhere along that early time when they first started, this is like 19, had to be like 19, between 1908 and 1910, um, there was a Nigerian name in there, Right? So I'm like, wow, like we've had this um, this kinship, this 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 club. And it's not too different from clubs in, in like society that we have back home as well. And then on top of that, as a as a first gen, um, you understand the importance quickly of having networks, right? So I, all those things kind of played into that decision. And also, when I was coming through, like there was only one other Nigerian I knew that was an alpha in my very chapter, Joha Matuku, who's the Igbo brother. Um, and okay, if Joha could do it, then like you know, I'm a, I'm gonna check it out. And I, again, for me, it was more so coming around, seeing the work the chapter was doing, and then in my particular chapter, seeing who came through that chapter. Right? You think about the Johnny's Johnson of the world, or you, or you think about the, um, the Tom Burrells of the world. Like these are huge black luminaries, right? Johnny Johnson, founder of Ebony Magazine, um, Burrell Communication, like all those uh, marketing company firms all those different people. So I'm like, yeah, I want to be associated with things great. And I think who doesn't want to be associated with something positive? And then as you become a member, um, then you realize how much more work is involved, right? Um, work as far as being upstanding to your best of your ability to represent for your community. But if you look at some of the early African leaders, the pan-African leaders, a lot of them, there was a lot of cross-pollination during that time around the um, civil rights era mm-hmm. because that kind of paralleled the time of a lot of the movement for independence. And you have a lot of also our leaders who are going to the UK and the US for school. Fella went to school here in the US. And a lot of them went to HBCUs because they, that's all they could do. Support, yeah. So, um, so yeah, I think all those things kind of played into and I think there's a lot of, from a value standpoint, what your parents tell you to do, hang around good people, you know, show me your friends and I'll show you who you are. And all those different things that really, really played into like why me specifically, Bacchus also 
African parents, um, not African parents, but first gen as ones they associate with um, distinguished members of uh, various black Greek letter organizations. And I respect all the black Greek letter organizations, all the fraternities, even though Alpha's the best. Um, but <laughs> no, shout, out to, shout out to everybody else. <laughs> I'm not, no disrespect. Um, but they, they have their reasons. Okay. Well, I'm not mad at it. Um, so, was that, now, was that consistent with what you heard in the past? Or? Well, I mean, I think a lot of um, the discussion, because I, I mean, I considered it, you know, I went to U of I. Mm-hmm. It was very big, you know, on Greek life. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the Divine Nine, um, I would say probably about half of them were active when I was in school. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I just, I don't know. For me, I think at the time, I think I identified more with other aspects of my identity than Mm -hmm. that even though i understand you know why it was founded i think at that time i didn't feel that either a um the organization would provide enough value to me or i i I wouldn't be able to um uh i don't know provide enough value to the organization in that respect so for me i was more active uh for example with the african student cultural Mm -hmm. association on campus so even though you know there was a mix, we we had people from all over the continent. I I had more in common with uh, the students that were part of that group. Even though there were other African students that were in you know the the Black Greek um, sororities and fraternities, I I think there was conversation of potentially starting an African oriented um, uh, sorority right. fraternity, and I don't I don't think that ever came to fruition. If I'm not mistaken. Um, it still didn't necessarily mean I would have joined it, but I think for me, I've always been passionate about like my culture and just Africa and Mm -hmm. stuff in general. So I I think my interests just always aligned, um, in that direction. Um, but I mean, I always wanted to, uh, you know, I learned a lot more about, you know, uh, black life, black culture and all of that. When I got to college, I, you know, I was one of five black kids in my graduating class in high school. So I didn't really have a good understanding of all of that. And there were ways, I mean, I wanted to connect uh, with that community, but I didn't feel like Greek life was the way necessarily. Um, and so I don't know. I mean, I had plenty of friends in that community, but I just, I, I never saw Greek life. I, I just didn't see the value at that time. That's interesting because they have huge chapters in West Africa. Oh, I know, yeah, they're international, sorority. yeah. They're international, but I think also for me, what was interesting for us, it was seven of us, and five out of seven of us were from diaspora. Mm. Me being from Nigeria, Jamar being uh, from Eritrea, uh, Vlad and Charles being Haitian, um, Ambrose being um, Afro-Peruvian, and then we had someone from Chicago and Detroit. <laughs> <laughs> so random. Then yeah. the, the following line, another Nigerian come through, and Haitian, um, and then the following line, a Liberian comes through, and then next, you know, we have somebody from Trinidad comes through. So, like, they, the nickname for my line was SS United Nation because we never <laughs> see that many diverse yeah. brothers from the uh, uh, from the diaspora on one line. So, I think it's very interesting. I also was involved with the African Student Association at the mm-hmm. time. I think that also kind of showed, like, I guess the versatility. People kind of call me a Swiss Army life. Cause I kind of understood very, both cultures very intimately. Mm-hmm. Of course, African a lot more, but I understood like the nuances and how to kind of navigate um, those different spaces in different rooms. So um, it's interesting because like I also was um, one of the founding members of the African Student Union at mm-hmm. UIC, which started the same year as the uh, African Culture ACSA. I forgot mm-hmm. what they call it mm-hmm. um, down at um, U of I. So we're always kind of like tag teaming information back and forth. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not. I, 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 don't, I don't mean to say that, you know, I'm knocking it or anything. I think for me at the time, it just wasn't for me. But I definitely understand its value. Um, 
But yeah, no, I, I'm always curious um, with that conversation because I know a lot of people, a lot of Ethiopians that also had pledged um, mm. at that time. So that's that's interesting insight. So you are uh, moving now on to your professional sphere, mm-hmm. right? So you are a healthcare consultant. Uh, I do a lot of healthcare. A lot of healthcare. Uh, a lot of healthcare. So I actually got my undergraduate degree in nursing. Okay. Um, so my first job out of college. Um, no, very young was in the ICU at the University of Chicago Hospitals. Um, shortly thereafter, I got my master's in healthcare administration. Um, then I've been in administration for you no know, a number of years before going to consulting and administration and kind of just kind of navigating and taking opportunities that I find interesting uh, all within healthcare. I like to say I've done everything in healthcare except pharma and insurance. But what inspired uh, you to get into healthcare or pursue nursing as a? My is mom. It, okay. My mom's a nurse. Okay. Um, and then my uncle was a nurse. Um, so like, I had people who already done it. I had you know, I saw my uncle doing it, and he used nursing to then become an accountant. Interesting. So like, the way it was kind of positioned to me is like, your first degree should be a degree that you can eat from, that you will never be hungry from, and then you can pursue whatever you want to pursue after that. Like, if you want to be a underwater basket weaver, that is cool. You can do that for your graduate degree, but you have a degree that no matter what happens, you can always eat from. Okay. So I picked. You no, know, I thought about all the degree, all the you no. Know, naturally, my not my first major, but I was influenced would have been business. Mm-hmm. Um, I would have thought that too. Yeah, I would have been. A, I would have been a business major, but then now thinking about it, like you know. Yeah, it kind of makes sense because, like, you know, I've gone through different areas of my life where I had to kind of come back to nursing mm. just to kind of, like, you know, either get some extra funds or whatever the case may be. I always have the opportunity where, like, it's kind of like this, like, like the security blanket, like, yeah. you always find work with nursing. Like, yeah. You can't guarantee to find work with marketing it's a great or, thing, Jeff, for sure. or business or anything else. And there's not too many degrees that you get as an undergrad that you can, like, start working immediately and get experience immediately right away. Okay. So what made you transition from being in, you know, in in the scrubs to transitioning to consulting oh uh, because or like i said my, my my background my interest has always been business i yeah. always know how money works how money flows how operate how how organizations are structured and leadership and then also i was an ra mm. all throughout undergrad by, after my freshman year so i got early exposure to leadership opportunities and leadership exposure so I, it was kind of the natural progression so my three um choices after my uh, undergrad was either going to law school going to um, um, get my MHA or MBA with a, whole he- a focus on healthcare or become a nurse anesthetist. And I don't know, something about the business aspect is kind of like, like you know, it's just kind of natural. I felt like yeah. I should have been here. But yeah. Okay. So you're, you're, you're in healthcare admin, mm-hmm. you're in consulting, and then OJA Express. Yeah. Tell us about it. For those who don't know, what is Oja Express? How did that come to fruition? So, Oja Express is a digital marketplace. How do you pronounce it? Oja. Oja, okay. Oja Express. All right. Um, it's a digital marketplace for cultural groceries. So, um, it came, It was born out of a, a need and a little bit of an annoyance, <laughs> right? So, at this time, I'm consulting, right? So, I'm mega commuter from Chicago to Houston every week. So, I'm flying out red eye, first flight out to Houston, come back to the last flight out on Thursdays. And, like, I'll come back home, and my mom will call me, like, hey, what are you doing this weekend? I'm, like, um, sleeping, like, <laughs> relaxing, trying to enjoy, like, the two to two and a half days I have in the city before I got to go back on the road again. And she was, like, yeah, can you come with me to the African store? I'm, like, 
No, but I'm going to. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> I really don't want to, but like... Was it I, for moral support or why? why no, I'm like, carrying stuff, okay. all the other stuff. Okay. Like, you know, so yeah. I'm like, man, this is not how I want to be spending my weekend. Because like, I got to now drive from Bronzeville to the southeast side, meet you there, or go all the way to Dalton to pick you up, take you there, drop you back off, then drive back home. Like, I just automatically saw like two or three hours of dead time. Oh wow! You didn't. She didn't have siblings that could help. I, they were all gone. They were all about kind of doing their own thing. But I think my time, my my younger sister might have been away at school. My brother was wherever he was. Okay. So we, you know, everybody was kind of like not, you know, rely. I'm I'm the oldest. You know, okay. So I'm the reliable one. I'm the go-to. The chosen child. You already know. Yeah, I'm first too. So yeah. <laughs> so um, that being said, so we'll we'll do it, and I'll, I'll do it begrudgingly. I'm like, there got to be a solution. There got to be a delivery company doing it. And this is around the time where we used to see those like uh, it was a T-Mobile Sprint where there's an app for that or oh, eighteen. I forgot what that what that generation of commercial where it was okay. an app for everything. Yeah, I'm like, there's got to be something for this. I was looking mm. for something and there was nothing, but there was something for other people. Meaning that at the time there was Peapod. Yeah, um, they had different services that were doing regular groceries. They weren't doing groceries catered to uh, cultural communities, specifically African communities, um, and learned from consulting and just me being my natural inquisitive self and just wanted to do things like if nobody's doing a walk can I do it so got together with my then co-founder at the time who was a developer um, built the initial app um, got some a lot of um, exposure started to kind of get the word out and really trying to have a service that was, that was literally built for us and by us and when I say built for us and by us that means a lot of things to a lot of different people because us could be immigrants, right? Mm-hmm. I, I identify very much with uh, with an Indian immigrant because I've been in that experience too, having to get your, your phone you could take overseas and having to get the right luggage and all the other different things, trying to smuggle food in, the whole nine yards. I could definitely... Immigration's listening, boy, they, man. Uh, every, they they already kidding. be getting our stuff already. They be, can't bring nothing in here these days. But um, but that being said, like, I, I very much understand that, but also understand that from an African standpoint, what that means as well. So um, really, really building this uh, product that was meant to be very, very intentional and very much you know, community-facing and, you know, and also helping to elevate the businesses that we uh, partner with as well. Okay. So the app caters to a very niche population, right? right. Um, what was the reaction at the time? First of all, what year was this that you kind of... So the idea... I went, funny enough, I went back and looked at my email. I don't know why I did this. And the initial idea came around 2014. Okay. Well, well I was talking to, talk to a couple of people about it. Yeah. Um, the initial MVP came out in 2015. 2016 when we were actually like launch-launched. Okay. Um, and then we just been on this very, very arduous path ever since. Sorry. Like, you really, really understand... It takes a lot to build a business. I think people look at like Facebook and Instagram and all these other businesses that like were quote unquote overnight successes or blew up to be multi billion dollar businesses and not knowing a lot that went into it. Mm-hmm. And we didn't have a lot of both networks and knowledge on the the inner working. So we spent a lot of years even just kind of learning the ecosystem of what venture and scalable startup businesses even look like. Okay. Things that we don't talk about. Things our parents don't talk about. Like our, our parents talk about go to school, get a good job that pays a high fig, high six figure. Make sure you have a carve out for me to you know give back home to you know you know do and stuff you need and you take care of yourself. 
Yeah. They don't really talk to us about building businesses or going to school to network or or the type of schools you go to and what you can possibly do for yourself. So a lot of the conversations I would want to have naturally with my parents, they couldn't really have. Okay. Or do they know other people who have money? Like, for example, one aspect of, uh, of raising capital is called the friends and family round, right? Mm-hmm. Where you raise a couple of thousands, hundred thousands, or couple, some people for millions from your friends and family. Like, my friends and family are like me. They probably paid off the one. They probably broke just like me. They ain't got no money. <laughs> so, so kind of learning that. But along the way, we, we kind of figured it out at, at some point in time. The pandemic really helped. We got into a couple of accelerators. Um, we ended up at some point in time within 2021 or so raising about $1.2 million, um, which sounds like a lot. And I don't want to dismiss um, the significance of that because not a lot of black founders raise a million dollars or more. So we kind of broke into that, that exclusive club. But that's not a lot of money in the grand scheme of things if you want to kind of build a transformational product that's going to really, really impact a lot of lives and it's scalable. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. So you, you brought up a couple of things. So so the app caters to a very niche population, mm-hmm. as you just mentioned. Uh, what was the reaction then at the time from um, both the community that it served, right, the consumer base, and then also the reaction from you know the, some of the vendors that you were working from was it positive? Was it like uh, I don't know? Like what was the general reaction? It was mixed. Okay. Um, it was mixed. So funny story. We had a customer um, that we delivered to, and she told us like, "Yeah, I downloaded your app three years ago, and I thought you would you all wouldn't be around that long." I'm like, "Damn! Like you downloaded three, you waited to see if we were gonna fail before you put an order in? Goddamn!" Like. <laughs> Well, you know what I'm saying? So you have some of that. I think there's a little bit of skepticism. There's a healthy a healthy and unhealthy skepticism that, that pervades the immigrant community because we've been let down so many. We almost kind of expect disappointment in mm-hmm. some regards. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's, there's, then there's the other aspect of it where it has to be perfect. There can't be no mistakes. it got to be flawless. So it's been a mix. Um, but generally good. Uh, on a scale of uh, a 1 in 10, I'd probably say 8, 8.5 for That's the great. most part. yeah. Uh, but you have some of those people who are like, you know, very, very particular or or people who are like, you know, like, I don't know, it's a business and it's an African business. So there's critique. There's a critique like, no, they're, they're expecting the worst. Yeah. Um, from the business standpoint, it's interesting because a lot of our businesses are very, very technology challenged. Mm-hmm. So some of them we can't even work with because they're so far behind the technology. Like we can't even integrate with your, like you're still using like a. Like those those metal key punch. Why is that? Do you think? Excuse me. Do you think that we're, I don't know, either Africans or immigrant community? Do you think we're just like risk averse, or we definitely, or we're scared? Yeah. What? Why is that? I think. I mean, it's a number. I think. I think a lot of immigrant businesses are are a cheap. (laughs) That's honest. Yeah. That's one. Um, They don't. They don't understand. Like you know, investing technology. There's a ROI that they don't see today. Right. They they gotta the money gotta be there today as opposed to understanding. It's kind of like a, a um, something that's kind of cumulative over time that kind of shows that benefit. I think another thing um, of it, we're risk averse. Risk averse in the sense of like, you know, think about how much it, these businesses risk to even start the businesses. To even come to this country. Right. So as, many, as, as, as much as possible to mitigate risk, you know, these business owners are going to take that. They need as much stability as possible because this is their livelihoods. Right, it's not like they have like multiple stores, and I think another thing too, something that we don't talk about as well, that especially in Chicago, I don't see this in many other places. Like a lot of the African grocery stores, the African-run businesses, are not even run, owned by Africans. Really? Yeah, like oh, you go to Old World Market, you look who's working there and who owns it. They're not African. Mm. So that's uh, something that you 
that needs to be examined. Because when I go to D.C., especially Silver Spring, yep. like you ain't going to see no anybody else selling Ethiopian products. Now, you might see some of their bigger stores have products there because they know the community. But like the actual stores, nah. Or the, some of the African grocery stores, nah. Same thing in Houston, Texas. The African grocery stores are run by Africans. So I'm not sure what's unique about Chicago where we allow that to happen. But that's another thing that I think uh, is hard to overcome. So when you have... If you're not controlling the means of how you're getting your food and you have to kind of you know deal with someone else not from your community, that also is another barrier. So do you think, uh, you know, and we'll talk about the success of the app thus far, but do you think that has affected, hindered in any way the success of the app? So do you think that maybe if you had launched in a different city or a different market, what would the success, do you think it would have been greater or less than? Um, it's hard to say because a lot of that is, is, is dependent also on the funding aspect. Like for them, let's assume I, looked, I, I, I was in Houston. Mm-hmm. Do I think I could have built the app and be it had a more um, traction? Probably. Do I think I could have raised money in Houston? I don't think I could have raised money in Houston. And we also got to understand the, the funding landscape. We're talking about raising money. A gross majority, over 80% of money that's raised in the U.S., like no venture money, is raised on the coast, either San Francisco or Boston, New York. There's not too much money flowing in the Midwest. So that's that's like baseline. Um, but if you are in the Midwest, or you are outside of those those um, areas, like geography matters and networks matter. Um, so Chicago had a, has a better network to raise. Um, Chicago has a better infrastructure than some of those places. Like, for example, if you're in Houston, like, people are so spread out in those cities that, like, logistically is not as feasible to kind of manage deliveries as it would be if, you know, like, a city like Chicago or a city like D.C. where things are, 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 are uh, the density is a lot higher. So, um, this is a, it's a mixed bag. Like, I think that the population would have been more supportive. I'm not sure from a financial backing standpoint that would have been the best place, the best move. Maybe D.C., yeah. Maybe DC. So I'm sure you're well aware of the statistic. I mean, VC funding, venture capital funding for black startups mm-hmm. or startups with black owners mm-hmm. in this country is very, very pitiful. I think Barron's um, this year had a report that's saying 1% of the $216 billion um, from VC firms last year, only 1% went to startups with mm-hmm. um, black founders. I mean, isn't that a bit discouraging? You know, what are your thoughts on that? Or why, why, what, what is the case for investing in, in black start? Why aren't people investing in black, black owned startups? Because investing is much a networked business. Like if I went to school with you or I've identified a level of intelligence or, or um, some type of pedigree with the schools you went to or the networks you come from or who referred you, yeah, I'm gonna give you. I'm gonna give you money because the early stage investing is a lot of is more about betting on a jockey and not the horse, right? So betting on the founder, and that's not necessarily the product. They'll figure the product out. The mm. founders have that grit. So I went to UIC. I mean, UIC is a school. At least then, now the reputation is a lot better. A lot of the different programs are getting a lot more ranked. Um, but that time it was like you know a commuter school is now like half no half residential half commuter. Um, and the most people who went there were first generation college students, either like, you know, they're first of their family or immigrants or what have you. So those networks weren't such that I could call people up to college. And then also I went to college of nursing, 
right? I didn't go to engineering, or I wasn't in the business school as well, so I wasn't in those networks that mm-hmm. that it is. If you think about like where those early founders are coming from, they have like a, a a personality, a profile. They went to Stanford, they went to Harvard, they went to one of the Ivies um, or one of the prestigious schools. Um, they're um, predominantly white male or um, or Asian. And Asian meaning also included Indian in the Indian subcontinent. Um, so you have a lot of other factors that doesn't really play to um, a lot of black founders. And then and venture is very much like a, a mindset. I know there's this um, thing where like oh we get more black VCs or black more black general partners. We have more deal flow to black companies, and that, I don't think that's true. I think even, in fact, I can say categorically, my worst investment meetings were actually with the black VCs. Why? Um, I think they put that kind of, um, because their reputation at risk, mm. they scrutinize you a lot harder. They're risk averse. Yeah, they're like, oh, you gotta, I can't just be giving money just because you're black. Mm. So you gotta really, you know, they put you through the criteria, but then they wouldn't put another white founder through that same type of scrutiny because they, they check the list, right? Okay, Harvard grad, white kid. Um, raising friends and family has all the other check marks that mm. if they fail like well I'm failing at the same rate making the same bad decisions as other VCs no I have failed that as opposed to a black founder which in and of itself is already somewhat of an anomaly comes around you stand out automatically so I gotta justify even more mm. why I invested in this founder more so than what, than I did like the typical um, tech bro founder that comes across. So we just have to work again ten times harder than our our, our non black counterparts to. Yeah, I mean, and I don't want to even say it's unfortunate. It might not be a bad thing. Um, um, it's unfortunate. It's hard, especially it's hard when you have a business that you really care about that you know can really make a difference. Um, but um, one of my investors, um, Nigerian Shay, um, wrote a LinkedIn article and he talked about you have to really really stick hard to your why. Mm-hmm. Um, because if, if not, if you if you're like building a company to like have these huge exits or whatever, then you're gonna be you're gonna be out the game really quickly. So we do have to work harder. We might have to bootstrap longer. We might have to like you know do things a little bit differently. But um, that's just the nature of the business. And until we have a we're in a position as Black people, I mean Black people, not just African American, but Black people globally, where we can have our own you know syndicates or we're in a position of power. We can write checks like that then um, that's the, the game is going to be the game. I mean, you know, obviously they've tried. There have been many efforts to, you know, increase uh, VC funding for, you know, the minority groups, right? Mm. So people of color, women, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously, it hasn't really helped. Mm. Um, I mean, do you think that it makes sense to just sort of have this... Um, separate but equal type of you know setting up you know black fund uh, black um vc capitalists to support you know black owned startups versus trying to change the system where the entire vc ecosystem is not based on inherent biases where you know people are just sort of supporting people that look like them right regardless of right. the i don't think that'll make a difference really I, honestly i i honestly i think I like to use this analogy, and this is in the most non-pejorative, non-offensive way possible. But you know how people say, like, oh, we have more black cops. There'll be, like, less, like, um, like police brutality. Well, we saw that wasn't the case that was in Memphis. Memphis, yeah. Where it was a whole bunch of black cops that killed that kid, guy, yeah. right? You know what I'm saying? I mean, once you're a cop, blue is blue, regardless if you're black, brown, or white. 
once you're a VC, VC is VC, they see green and they see opportunity and they want to mitigate as much risk as possible. So if you have a whole bunch of VCs that are, 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 are black, a whole black VC group, they're going to still do the same thing the white boys do. Become a product of the system. They, 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 the you, you just, it, the system creates, it creates that. So I think as founders, I think it, we have to kind of really, really think differently about how we approach our pro, how we build our product and how we build, build and scale our businesses. I would say probably focus a lot more on building our community and building out um, abilities to kind of like use like revenue-based financing to kind of build your businesses. And also, who says that my business has to blow up media, media, no, meteoric overnight? Like, mm. no, if you think about it, like prior to the internet boom, how long did like it take Ford? How long did it take all these like big business moguls and luminaries to kind of build their businesses? It, took, it takes time to build these things. You have your nine to five gig. Mm-hmm. You have your startup. Mm-hmm. So on top of all of your, you know, extracurriculars and family time and all of that, um, how do you balance work and your personal life? How are you taking care of yourself and just not going crazy? You mentioned the grays earlier, but yeah. outside of that, how are you managing? I'm not. Oh, if I'm being fair. <laughs> that's honest. Like, I'm just. It's hard. I think one thing people don't understand about entrepreneurship, and what, I'm going to be very, very vulnerable right now. Please. I, I think entrepreneurship um, actually forced me to seek therapy um, in a sense that it exposes things that I never had to confront and deal with. Like I think through, all through high school, I was a top 10 student, college, good grades, graduate school, great grades, you know, doing all these different things. And now I'm put in a position where I'm not the best or, or, or in that considered in that, that echelon and I'm, I'm learning and entrepreneurship in and of itself is a, 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 a combination of trial and error so you kind of get it right um, and it just kind of really exposed a lot of things for me that um, I didn't realize like you know like this obsession with winning and like not failing and, and imposter syndrome and a lot of these different things. Um, I wasn't hanging out with my friends. And I think another thing, too, was key is, like, some of my friends didn't understand what I was going through. Like, their version of entrepreneurship is what Shark Tank shows them. Like, I'm really in this. I'm, I'm in this. And then I've seen, like, these investor calls, having to talk to 200 investors and getting, like, 197 no's just to get a couple of yeses. That's that's hard. Like, it like, takes a toll. Yeah. I mean, it's literally, like, taking your head and, like, bashing it against the wall until you finally make a dent no no yeah you made a dent but your head is bloody in the process right so i think um that that it helped me do that so i do take more time to kind of um uh, practice different um meditations affirmations self-care um, i've really been getting to skincare these days like i know how to hold the whole process of doing like the the wash, you know, saying the, the toner, face card the, the, matters, right? right yep. then, then the vitamin C serum and uh, the whole the whole nine yards. So I get facials every now and again. I like that. That's from Maxine to me. Um, I travel at least once a month to somewhere warm, especially during uh, winter time. Seasonal affective is real here. Mm. Um, to go somewhere else and just kind of clear the air, clear my mind. Um, so I find different things that work for me, and then also engaging my, with my friends how I best I can. Um, I'm not saying that we're not on the same level everybody's in their different journeys but I, it's very hard to explain to them what you're going through they're not going through the same thing so i have another group of entrepreneurial friends who are who understand like you know having a board meeting getting cussed out by your uh by your investors or 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 having a product launch that didn't work or not shipping or having to fire someone and things of that nature so so um to answer your question frankly i, I find ways to cope 
um, it's more of juggling and not balancing, if that makes sense. Like, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes I might overemphasize on family and I might like, like drop off in other areas and pick that back up and kind of juggle it as best as possible. But I think it's very hard to to um, find balance in that kind of in that, in that um, having all those things kind of going on simultaneously. I was going to ask, do you have you been able to find a community that can support you right so you you obviously you know will have friends um that that come through in different ways in different capacities right mm-hmm. maybe some of your closest friends may not be able to understand mm-hmm. you know your 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 sort of day-to-day in the startup realm mm-hmm. right but you'll be able to find a community with other people who are in that startup space and are going through the same you know grind that you are um, is it different also, I mean, do you see any difference in maybe, um, the general startup community versus, you know, something that's more niche again, like, um, do you have, for example, a community of, you know, founders, startup founders that are people of color or people who are Yeah. Oh yeah. They're, they're, they're the black tech. Okay. The, the, first of all, the Chicago, the Chicago tech community is really, really supportive. Okay. Chicago um, tech community is probably one of the more impressive communities because it imbues a lot of Chicago culture and values. Like one thing I like, and I travel the most of the country. I've traveled to forty-five of the fifty states in the country. Okay. So I've seen a lot. And I think one thing that's very unique about Chicago is like we're a city um, um, that you got. You know, you can't talk about it if you're not if you're not going to be about it, right? We're not Hollywood. We're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll get up together, and then I, I will ghost you and never see you. We don't you know. We we if I say I'm going to see, you, I'm going to get up with you. I'm going to get up with you because we might run into each other, and you don't want to be seen as a fake, a flake. So. The, the culture of the founders here are very much alike. If I can't do something, I can't, I can't do it. Or I can't do it, I'm help you. And then you want that to be a reputation of that person, you know, very founder-friendly, or he comes through and build that, um, your own kind of brand equity up in that space. Um, but even within the, um, the Chicago tech ecosystem, there is a black tech ecosystem even within Chicago, too, that we get together every now and again to just commiserate, share information, share investor details. Um, help each other how best we can. So um, it, 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 that that does very much exist, and I think it's very vital um, when you want to start a business to also be with people of like mind because you never know. I mean, I know a couple of founders who you know gave me um, intros to some investors, and two of them end up investing in us. So no, it, it, there's value there. Okay, we've talked about some of the challenges with you know going having a startup some you know the daily grind and all of that what has been your favorite experience of the journey so far um if there if there is any yeah um i would definitely say the customers okay like we had a customer that we were um doing grocery delivery that we delivered to she's still a current customer Mm -hmm. she lives right across the street from a jewel osco and she still orders like close to two hundred dollars worth of groceries from us. Oh, wow. she, like, she, she said she never stepped foot in that food on Julasco. She came here as um, um, on asylum, so the only food she knows how to cook is Ghanaian food. Mm. So understanding our importance to this person, like you literally across the street from a grocery store, most immigrants will figure out a way to make substitutes and make it do what it do. But she relies on us for her weekly or bi-weekly groceries to get and I know her order. When I see her name comes through I know exactly what's going to be on that list. It's going to be jasmine rice. It's going to be headless uh, mackerel fish. It's going to be palm nut soup. I know exactly what she's going to get. So I think that aspect but I think also the journey. There's something to be said about 
really respecting the journey and seeing how far we came. Um, I know you knew us when we first early on started, like, and I, I mean, I never in my life would have ever thought that I would personally be responsible for raising over a million dollars. Like some of the things we wrote down, uh, my co-founder, my, co- my then co-founder, and I wrote down that we're now seeing come to fruition. Like we want a um, uh, a pitch competition. That was a pitch competition. Um, um, so we won um, a competition at Wharton, um, to, and then we got a. I mean, things that we like, we would never. Uh, NVC, sorry, the name was uh, like a new venture competition at a Wharton. Like, did a Wharton? We can you Chicago wouldn't let us. No, get in the door. Like, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. We got into accelerator. Not only did we get into one accelerator, we got into three. Like, you know what I'm saying? So, like, I think that kind of like one of those things where you manifest, you say something, you pray for something, and you think it's going to happen right away, and it doesn't happen right then, but it happened. I think that's been one of the things I kind of look back on, like, yeah, everything I would look back and wrote down, it, ha- it happened when I wanted it to happen, but it somehow happened. So, I think that speaks to the power of the tongue and the power of manifestation. What would you say in that respect is maybe the worst part or some of the less glamorous parts of of uh, pursuing a startup? Yeah, um, I think you, you probably heard me say a couple of times, I kept on saying my then co-founder, um, you know, making sure you and your co-founder are aligned. Like having a co-founder relationship is very, very, very much like having a marriage. I know they say it, but then... It's real. <laughs> like, yeah. like, I mean, like, you know, he decided to, um, to go another direction um, that wasn't in alignment with what we were doing. Um, and we decided to, like, go our separate ways. Had to sign a separation agreement, like, kind of like a divorce paper. Like, mm-hmm. you get this, I get this. It was like, and it was very, very emotional. I'm like, yo, this is another guy. Why am I feeling like the sense of loss? You know what I'm saying? Picking is, up the pieces yeah. and, and like I'm like, why do I feel like no? Uh, what's it called uh, what's that movie with Whitney Houston? Um, uh, where she blew up the car? I feel like oh, waiting to accept. Yeah, I felt like I felt like, I'm like <laughs> what's, what's going on? Like you know, um, because we kept, we went from literally talking every single day, right? Mm. To like now, like not like I don't fuck with you, but like yeah, we we not on yeah, the same. It's a yeah, it's, it's a lost thing. Yeah, it's a lost thing. Not the same journey. So I think definitely that has been one of the parts that have been really like you know somewhat shitty um i definitely think um the venture market i hate the fundraising process i know it's a to some people um it's a necessary evil um but like it just it's not equitable you like you're going in it's almost like going in like it's like going onto a, a racetrack with no shoes and uh two both hands tied behind your back and you still have to have the mindset i'm still gonna win like, even though everybody got the, the latest and greatest shoes on, um, they got the newest technology equipment, they're actually starting up five yards ahead of you. Um, and you still have to have that mindset like, yeah, I still got to win. I think as much as you have to have that mindset, but when you are on the track and you see it and you're in that, like, man, this is fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> Knowing what you know now about the journey, right? So what it's like to do the startup, the VC ecosystem, um, you know, working with your your staff, your co-founder, all of that. Would you do it again? Because I'm sadistic, yes. <laughs> um, because again, I don't know why I don't know, but I will have to be passionate about the idea. Like it has to be something that has to be transformative. The way I looked at it, first of all, when we built our initial financial like plans for this, I was supposed to have been exited, but I supposed to have my house in Bermuda all that stuff by now, but then when, when in, in the grand scheme of things, the the real thing was having the the, the impact in communities, 
And I think that's still going to take some time because I think that uh, what's happening now is we're, we're probably we're a little bit ahead of our time with the generational shift. Um, the pandemic definitely sped sp- some things up, but I think also getting people more comfortable. Like in typical immigrant immigrant communities, the last vestige of culture that's actually shed is actually food culture, but they're not always early adopters of technology. So we're kind of in that middle. How do we... Like how do we anchor that fact that food is a very important culture, and how do we speed up that adoption to technology? So um, my thinking is I'm just gonna stay in the ring as long as possible to see this be a thing. Just again taking sort of the summation of your entire journey here, what advice would you give to those who might be interested in entrepreneurship, and also to those who are interested specifically in pursuing a startup that's focused on you know either the african diaspora or specific um community you know within the u.s do you and would that would that advice be different between those two groups yeah if you want to start a startup start like you're not i mean one thing that we had early on remember i said with the ideals of 2014 a lot of it was planning i could plan my ass off right then we talked. We had a conversation with a local entrepreneur here. His name is Jimmy Odom. So, you've been spending how long planning? Why haven't you gone on the streets yet? How can you haven't put a product yet? How can you put it out yet? Like, so I would say, if you're gonna start, start. Use your own means within reason to build something that you can show someone, and then just go, just go for it, right? Um, definitely getting involved and plugged into the different startup communities wherever you are, um, and. There's nothing. I mean, there's nothing that's going to prepare you for entrepreneurship. I don't care. I've had two. I have been responsible for two hundred million dollar budgets. Nothing has prepared me for starting up my own business. I only raised a million. My, you hear me? I had responsibility for two hundred million dollar budgets. I've had my lowest budget since I, as administrator was eleven million dollar budget. Starting your own thing is a totally so nothing's going to prepare you for it. Right, so I will say also, but if you also interested, I'll say join a startup, see how it's like, get an early stage startup. You never know. Some some of the richest people out there are early stage Uber employees who cashed out later. So um, depending on what your motivations are, join it, kind of understand what it takes, and then go for it. So what's next for Aja Express? Yeah, so um, we're in a change. We're in a, in a sea change for Aja Express. Um, again, um, you no know, changes with the founding team. Um, the market dynamics have changed. We're now, what, two, three years out of COVID. We're kind of going back to pre-COVID levels of different things. And it's really given us the opportunity to look at how do we serve. Is there another way we can serve this community better and more efficiently, meaning without as much overhead? Because doing grocery deliveries a lot, you got to coordinate with the stores. You have to have shoppers. You have to have drivers. How can we do that as lean as possible while giving an adequate price point but great value to customers? How are we looking at this new generation? Also, we're in a time now where everything's high, inflation and all those different things. So we had a lot of different, um, I like to say, external constraints that necessarily weren't a thing we were thinking about when we first started that we have not to be kind of mindful of. So, um, so stay tuned, stay plugged in. Uh, we 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 are um, are pivoting from our core product, which was a marketplace business, to now more of a grocery tech business, meaning focusing more on the stores and helping the stores be more efficient. And if we help the stores be more efficient and better, they serve the communities better. So that's kind of where our focus is kind of turning towards. Boye de Sobitan, thank you so much for joining Uh, us. Thank you for having me, and uh, thank you for this uh, wine. It's been (laughs) been great.
the wine helped. Did it? The wine helped them to loosen up a little the, bit. The, but we always, we always talk. Like, yeah, we, yeah. But like, it's just kind of like, yeah, I'm just going to like, yeah. Just, no. It was a great conversation. Yeah. I learned a lot more than I thought I knew about the app. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's, it's been a, it's been a, it's been a struggle, but like, yeah, um, just really committing to wanting. I mean, the need. Like, we thought about it. Like, for example, when I was in DC, um, and talking to the Ethiopian grocery store, they're like, "Yeah, it'll work here. It'll work in Denver, uh, for the Ethiopian community, right? It'll work in Dallas. Not so much. There's not so many people in Chicago. I'm like, it's not because I know a lot of Ethiopians in Chicago, but like." And I'm not sure if they were talking more about the mindset because what I tend to realize is that different African communities tend to take on the cultural mindset of the cities that they are in. Mm. So I'm not sure if it's talking about the mindset or if it's talking about like the number of grocery stores or all the different things or how people are acquiring their product. But it's like again trying to think about how do we crack these different markets and how do we do that more efficiently. So yeah, so it's been a learning process. Yeah, I mean, is there any like desire to? Well, I know you said you guys are pivoting, but. I mean to make it sort of a national thing, or are you oh, yeah. still okay. Oh, okay? Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. oh yeah. That's that's the national thing. But yeah. again, as opposed to having like a three year timeline, I might have to have a thirty year timeline. Oh, like the, the three year horizon, I might have to be a thirty year horizon. Okay. Uh, I talked to one. Uh, I talked to another founder. His name is um, Horace. Mm-hmm. He's been going this company for twenty years, and he had a perfect analogy. He said it's like boxing. You don't know if that knockout's coming in the first round or the twelfth round, but you got to stay in the ring. Yeah. To find out. So, so you're in it to win it. You're committed. I'm in it to win it or get knocked out. One of those, one of those two things is gonna happen. I'm gonna either win or I'm gonna be on the, on the mat. So. When do you know it's time to to throw in the towel, if ever? First of all, I gotta get into the habit of knowing when to quit. That's yeah. One. But two, when it becomes soul sucking, when it's, when it like saps my energy, yeah. like when I don't get excited about it, I think then it's like yeah, probably time better off. It. Yeah doing something else what did your parents say when you started like i mean obviously you had your nine to five so i'm sure they weren't too concerned but were they like what are you doing like just leave it and just focus on normal mm. thing they were supportive my dad's a natural risk taker oh so that helps yeah my mom's a conservative one <laughs> also it helps that when i'm in magazines or when i was like <laughs> i think i was in Times square we had that on the nasdaq oh nice oh, she bragged about that everywhere <laughs> that was in all types of WhatsApp. sporting it and all the whatsapp groups? man that was all types of, I, got, I, mean, I actually got it from another person like it's from whatsapp and then it's gonna show forwarded multiple times so yeah i'm like okay so and they and they, they also they also know i'm a nurse they know that you no know, long, long term I'm, mm-hmm. I'm gonna be okay yeah yeah yeah, so, yeah. now if this was, if it was all i was doing i think they'd be a little bit more concerned yeah but like okay it's a side hustle. It's um, not even so much a side hustle. Time. It's like a, it's like part of me, parallel hustle, and yeah. I have other things. I have real estate. I have other things that yeah. that do things for me. That I'm not like at the. I'm gonna be okay. Yeah. 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 No, that's good. Ooh, kudos to you, man. Yeah, I mean, seven years. Yeah, I mean, you. But I mean, you went across the world. I mean, I that, mean. Like, I would love to have gone to work for the Nigerian embassy somewhere in Nigeria. Not, well, not anymore after my mom had her experience recently. But, yeah. but no, doing that type of work on a, on a geopolitical level, I mean, that that's not, that, that takes a, a, a bit of entrepreneurial spirit as well. So you don't have any desire to go, to, what's the longest you've been in Nigeria outside of like when you first grew up there? Um, a month. Oh, so you never like lived there for temporarily or anything? Uh-uh. You I mean, wouldn't? I, 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 I know my limits in Lagos. It's 10 days. 10 days. After 10 days, I change. Like, kind of like a halt. Like, like, you start, no. Too busy? You, you, not too busy. You, 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 you in, 
it, it's already in your DNA automatically. Mm-hmm. So now it's activated, right? So now I'm in traffic, talking like crazy to people. You, you know, you just have a way you got to move because you, you don't you don't move mad. Now you're just like crazy, first of yeah, all. Yeah. If you don't move mad, people think, oh, you're a pushover. Oh, so you think shit's sweet. So you got to then start showing people like, like, I'm crazy too. So like you have to figure out a way. So I know I can tend that like I got to get on a plane and get back to because if I... Continue this You're way. too American, man. What happened? It's not about being American. You're too spoiled. It's not about being spoiled. I know because I was there for, uh, for three weeks. By day by day 11, the way I was talking to market women and just like the, my, my driver. Like, why are you driving like that? You know what I'm saying? Like, different things. I'm like, yo, it's not, it's not me. I'm more of a... I'm an outgoing person. I'm more like... I like things to kind of happen and flow. Yeah. And if I have to always be aggressive, which I can't be. Yeah. Um, then it's not going to be fun for everybody who's around me. You didn't like who you were turning into? I didn't like it for people who were around me. I didn't care. I'm, I'm going to get what I'm going to get. <laughs> but like, you know, I didn't like, you know, my cousin saying that. Because I'm always a gentle. I'm always a cool, cool cousin. A big bro. Whatever, whatever. I didn't like how this all me transforming. So, like, mm. they, so they know I can go there. I'm like, no, I just like, so 10 days. But I, but I want to, I don't plan on retiring in this country, ever. You going to go to Costa Rica, like your friend? Belize, Costa Rica, Panama, Ghana, Nigeria. Not if you, if you weren't in the U.S., where would you be? If I wasn't in the U.S., based on where I've been. And obviously, okay, so it's not going to be Nigeria. So where would you be? Okay, where would you go on the continent if you weren't in Nigeria? Between Kenya and Ghana. Mm, okay, why those two? Kenya got had the most fun of my life in Kenya. Like, okay, you're just thinking about fun, but I mean, like, yeah, li- no, like I mean, realistically, like, like to live, like you can I mean, see yourself yeah, working that's what there. I'm saying, like, I mean, be, and because like with going to Kenya, like I see why Niger- Nigerians take over in these countries. I, I see it. People are too docile. They do. They too chill. Like so, I see it, and then like you know, you guys mistake. People just being reg- you know, calm and stuff for being docile. That don't mean they're pushovers just because no, they're not like... No, but, but they don't move at that speed. And they're not always on. I think a lot of countries, a lot of locals move at that. I mean, you, you have to hustle in Africa. Like, it doesn't matter what country you're in. You see the difference. You've been in... I mean, come to Addis. It's the same thing. I'm not saying that. I'm not, I haven't been to Addis. I can't say that. I'm, sure. I'm talking about from Nairobi. Sure. I'm talking about Accra. Sure. So, and I'm talking about from Cairo. So I've been to Egypt, too. Well, North Africa is a different... It is different. different they, yeah. They're kind of... Yeah, they're different. They're different. <laughs> but, like, the, the mentality is, is totally different. So I can see why that happens. Well, I noticed also there's a certain level of assertiveness that African and Nigerian men specifically come with mm. that the local men don't come with. Like, what do you mean? In Kenya. In Kenya, it's more acceptable for the woman to approach the man. I've heard of that, yeah. In Nigeria, like, all you have to do, literally, for most men, have a fat ass and they're running. Like, oh, yeah, baby, I love you. I love you. I mean, that's not unique to Nigeria. That's, by not, the way. that's not unique to Nigeria, but the way we, the, the, the process and the mannerism in which it happened, because you, again, you're a beautiful woman yeah. with assets that, no, no pun intended, assets, that, yeah. uh, that, that attracted, and you're expected to then go and hunt for a man. As opposed to being the person who is, I don't want to say hunted, I don't want to make it seem too gamey, yeah, the yeah. person being pursued. Yeah. And it's a different thing. And even in, in, even in, well, not so much in Ghana. Ghana is a little bit uh, more, uh, excuse me, um, thank you, a little bit more uh, aligned with Nigeria. But even then, they're, still, they're, they're a little bit more chill. Nigerian mm-hmm. men are, Nigerians are, are, Nigerians are aggressive, but Nigerian men are very aggressive. Oh, I, I'm very, but I mean, okay, so let me ask you this. So, like, 
did it ever bother you like either growing up or whenever you came to realize like okay the you you've you've interacted with um with people from different countries in africa right and you get a sense of their personalities and then you kind of start to build your scheme of like oh people from ghana are like this or people from ethiopia are like this did it ever bother you when people because you know people talk shit all the time about like nigeria oh my god nigeria that's all blah blah I mean, blah one like african on the continent is like i heard it's one oh not on i heard in the u.s one in four africans is nigerian Allegedly, I don't even know what that is, but I don't believe it. One in five is a Nigerian, uh, African, in the, on the continent. I mean, that's that's probably statistically true. But what I'm saying is, like here in the states, right? So, like, what, when you're in school, or even after, you know, post post education, like you're in different places where you got people from different African countries. Mm-hmm. Like, did it ever bother you, like, to hear those things about like people from where you're from, like? You know, people will say things about Ethiopians, mm-hmm. or people will say things about. Did that ever bother you? You know, like, oh, Nigerians, you're so this and that. Da, no, da, da, da. It was more of a compliment, like, kind of like. Really? Like, yeah, kind of. Like, it's kind of like, like, it's kind of like, 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 like. Did you can hate me now? Like, yeah, like, if we weren't doing things, yeah, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be talking about us either way. So, like, so this is the mindset of a Nigerian, right? We're gonna do things to the umpteen no matter what we're doing. So you're gonna be a doctor, you're gonna be the best doctor, you're gonna be a scammer, you're gonna be the best scammer. Oh, y'all don't play by education. I mean, not nobody's talking about that. Well, no, no, I'm talking about, yeah. about but you know what I said? You're gonna be a scammer. You're gonna be the we literally had a scammer who tried to buy a, a freaking Euro League team. Like hush puppy. Like you're gonna be whatever we're gonna do, we're gonna do it to the to the to the to the top. Okay. Good and bad. Okay. Right? So when you when it, so the mindset like if we weren't doing anything, you wouldn't be talking about it. How many how many times do people hear about people talking about from people from Burundi? Man, don't don't our brothers and sisters don't get on. No, I'm just saying. <laughs> but I'm saying, what do, you, what do you hear? What do you hear about Mauritius? No, I'm not. I'm not trying to. I mean, it's not, it's not shade to them, but like, if you are out front, if you're not loud, if you're not doing this, you're not doing that. If you're not a target, you know what I'm saying. If you're not doing things on a major scale, or have people in your country doing things on a major scale, no one's talking about you. Yeah. Name a popular Burundian. I mean, I don't know one. Make someone from Djibouti. Where did they stop? I'm just saying, make someone from Djibouti. I don't know nobody. Exactly. I know one person. I knew. I met one girl a long time ago. Okay, but I mean, so you take it sort of as a a compliment. B maybe like you know playful. Just you don't ever take it as an insult. It doesn't ever bother you that you have Niger. You know, people say, oh scammers. Oh you did you loud Play whatever boys, whatever all yeah, this other yeah, stuff. Yeah, Peter, but you don't. Yeah. You don't. You brush it off. It's I not brush like it off a, because like it's, 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 it's a market. Like you might hate it, but somebody else loves it somewhere. So yeah, you go where you celebrate. That's right? true. So as annoying as we are, we can't be even to ourselves. Self, self admittedly. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I wouldn't have it no other way. Foreignish is produced by me, the host. Our theme is Man vs. Self, the Eric Jackson remix instrumental by Paradox Hip Hop. You can learn more about this show and our guests on our social media at Foreign-ish. Thanks for listening. Hope you'll join us next time.